I'll be the first one to admit I'm probably not even one of the smartest programmers out there. I think there are probably thousands of people or you know tens or hundreds of thousands of programmers who are probably significantly better than I am. I I think what really helps me personally is is going beyond the the technology itself. So welcome to Outliers. This uh, this is a podcast with Outliers, and uh, you know after tra- traveling uh, Maharashtra and lots of other places, I'm back in Bangalore. Uh, I, I I was hoping uh, this particular outlier I'll get to you know meet in person and record this, but uh, we we are doing it remotely. Uh, I'm really excited to welcome uh, Viral B Shah. Uh, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Julia Computing Language. Uh, and more than that, uh, most of the communities, uh, you know, the engineering communities I have interacted with in Bangalore and even outside, uh, they think very high of Viral. Uh, I, I'll be honest, I, I'm not an engineer. I don't get much of uh, what Viral does. But uh, I can now see the impact of things that uh, he's been building. So welcome to Outliers, Viral. Thanks, Pankaj. Great. So I'm, I'm just thinking where to start. Uh, this is one of those conversations where I feel miserably uneducated. But uh, <laughs> let me start uh, with the start, uh, Viral. Uh, who are you? <laughs> no, so what I mean to understand is... Uh, why do you do what you do? And if you could also start with, uh, you know, your early career uh, or early life and help us understand your passion for you know, what you do uh, and, and why do you do that? And then, then we can get into more specific uh, threads of the conversation. Yeah, you know, uh, fundamentally, I have, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start from sort of a little later in my career about some of these realizations, but then maybe help you know, maybe project some of what what drove me there. Fundamentally, I like, you know, thinking about technology and its impact on society. And that's, you know, that's something that really drives me and keeps me going because it's one of the only things that can help you uh, bring about positive impact at scale. Um, I didn't realize that until I sort of started working on Aadhaar with Nandan, uh, which which happened sort of, you know, a few years ago, like about seven or eight years ago. But I I, I got interested in, in programming and computer science actually way, way, way back uh, when I was in my eighth grade, uh, where we were taught basic in my school. It was one of those subjects that was not particularly of interest to most people because it was not on the 10th standard board exam. Um, but it was fascinating and and got me going. And you know what what really uh, what what I really liked about it was that it was a world where you know you could write a program and it would do exactly what you asked it to do. You made an error in the program and you'd get the wrong answer, but the computer would blindly follow the instructions you gave it. And it was the programming for me in basic uh, for the longest time was a really powerful tool in terms of understanding the world around me, uh, especially, you know, as I started college, I learned about, you know, all the physics, you know, 
the Newton's laws, the thermodynamics, the, the classical mechanics, uh, all, all the stuff that you'd expect sort of in a typical IIT, JEE preparatory book like Resnick and Halliday. And uh, from that point onwards, sort of using computation as a way to understand the world around me and eventually using it as a tool for, you know, positive change and impact has sort of, I, I think, been a, a defining uh, thing for me. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if that's too abstract, but uh, it, maybe that's a good starting point, I think. No, indeed it is, Viral, because uh, a lot of times when we are discussing programming uh, or computing, uh, we tend to get uh, too technical. I've always believed that uh, culture uh, is important and the, in, in the stuff that you talked just point uh, you know, in that direction. Uh, you know, just to keep this alive, uh, what changes have you seen uh, since the time you started programming to now when it comes to this whole culture of programming uh, or this, this engineering that people describe in, in their own uh, different ways, uh, what have been some of the learnings for you as you grew as a programmer, uh, you know, someone who could use programming to solve problems, like you said, uh, what are some of the key milestones? What are some of the key learnings that, that helped you grow into this to where you are today? That's, that's very interesting. The, the, you know, the, the, I, I think you're right. The larger context you know, around which some of these things happen are, are almost as interesting or more interesting than, than the actual you know, technology itself or the act of programming um, or building systems. Um, you know, I, before maybe I directly answer your question, I'd like to maybe note that you know, I, I started probably programming, what was it? I'm guessing 1993, four, maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was in about 97, if I remember correctly, that PC Quest sort of sent out, sent out these first series, the Linux series in the mail, uh, in the magazines. Um, quite a radical thought, like you could get a free operating system, you know, in, in with a magazine, who would have thought? And to me, that was the first introduction to open source. and you know what what started out as a fringe movement back then is now mainstream you know you had you know you remember the famous words by uh, by bill gates about how linux will be dead or something i don't remember but there were many pronouncements by by people in the software industry about how open source was this fringe thing and would never survive to the point where you know open source is mainstream and uh, you know, we have like Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft, who sort of staunchly backs open source as their business model now. So it's, it's quite a huge change, uh, you know, over these last 20 to 25 years in the way the world has evolved and thinks about technology and is, is significantly more open in its approach, um, which was always what the software ethos was, but somewhere it got lost along the way and, and it has, some, you know, kind of come back. But if, if I sort of look back at myself as a programmer, I think the, the biggest thing I, the biggest thing I um, can pinpoint in my own evolution is, you know, starting out young, you're always focused on technology, right? On feats of engineering, hmm. on, on doing, on being able to, on priding yourself upon writing complex technical stuff. And 
you cannot see the larger people uh, the larger picture right as as a young person as is often the case and i certainly could not i think uh, and it took me years if not a whole decade to sort of see the larger picture and think about using technology as a tool rather than you know technology being a goal as of you know itself hmm very nice i i would i think a good analogy is music right like you know when when a young person learns music they're always trying to sort of figure out the complex you know chords right they want to play some some very complex arrangements on the guitar or or the piano or whatever it is they're learning but you know that you know complexity in technique does not necessarily uh, you know is not necessarily the same as as good music right and i think the same applies to programming or or technology as well hmm hmm nice so so what were some of the the key learnings uh, in your career uh, as a programmer uh, so far if you were to look back and and kind of revisit uh, those milestones uh, one is like you rightly said your your own realization that uh, you know solving the bigger problems or getting the bigger picture is where uh, you need to apply uh, you know what you know best uh, how how's that journey been uh, were there failures uh what what would be a failure for for you as a programmer uh and were there uh, you know those moments when you you know the whole change the world kind of thing came alive so can you uh, you know illustrate uh, your journey with the two three such anecdotes or examples that capture these learnings yeah yeah so like i said you know you know in terms of some of the milestones maybe i'm just sort of reflecting back on the times when i started writing my first programs and you know i i talked about basic and it was such such a fantastic system you know uh, for someone who was a young programmer back then you you had this integrated development environment with integrated graphics and you know i i used to write i used to write sort of all these you know equations of motion and classical mechanics and you could you could see you could imagine sort of you know throwing a stone and seeing what trajectory it would follow and then realize that it's the same trajectory a spacecraft would follow or a missile would follow right um to a certain extent i mean and and that was really powerful the ability to predict the physical world uh, you know if if you are understood the fundamentals you could write a program and you could you could you know you could sort of follow the path of motion and increasingly as as i've uh, you know grown as an engineer and moved from physical systems that that interact with well defined laws um into human systems which do not follow well defined physical laws <laughs> you know working people right um you know designing things like aadhar where technology is only one part of the story but you know finally it's affecting people and how they will react to technology and then you know what do you do in technology to react back to that reaction and then sort of you know you can imagine sort of that repeated game playing out um and imagining sort of what the fixed point of such a such a thing would look like and and we don't have formal tools to understand these kinds of things but i i think that's that's sort of the thing about growing as an engineer is you know is at some level there's actually this beautiful blog post that someone who retired from or or left google uh, wrote in response to that sort of recent um, you know blog post on on gender um, about engineering culture mm-hmm. and 
I, I cannot unfortunately recollect it at this very moment, although I'll be happy to send you a link afterwards. But he really touched, uh, you know, touched upon, you know, sort of hit the nail on the head on on what engineering really is. And, and he made a very interesting observation that at Google, you get software designations, software engineering designations by number, you know, software, I, you know, I, I don't know deeply things about Google, but it's like, you know, software development engineer, one, two, three, four, five, six, whatever, right? As you get increasingly, you know, better at writing complex software and a, a more proficient programmer, you get these higher levels out there. But then there is a jump from numbered titles to named titles, you know, like product manager or VP of engineering, or again, I'm making these names up. I don't think this is representative of Google. But the point was that there is this transition from numbers to names. And that transition requires you to have other capabilities like, you know, empathy as a programmer for your fellow programmers, for your users, you know, um, and so on and so forth. And, and sort of ideas like design rather than, you know, programming itself and, and building something and, and thinking about the larger context. And I thought that really sort of defined, you know, what engineering is really about, that it's not just about technical achievements, but about the larger picture. And I, I see that that has sort of been really my own personal evolution as a person, as a programmer, you know, over, over these last couple of decades. I went from high school into college in India, um, learning Pascal, um, eventually teaching myself C, going to engineering college, where I think in the earlier article, you you know, we, we spoke a little bit, uh, you know, when, when I talked to Factor Daily about uh, my terrible grades yeah. and potentially what would have been major failures going by the standard system. Luckily, I was, I was, uh, you know, I was able to avoid that outcome and I was able to go in for a PhD. And so I, I, you know, eventually got a PhD in computer science, uh, writing the system called Star P. So, so there was this sort of increase in, you know, all throughout my educational life, it was all about sort of, you know, getting better technically and increasingly in a narrower, narrower domain until I reached a point where I was the technical master of exactly something where no one else was, right? Which was sort of what a PhD gets you to. Yeah. Uh, quite failures along the way, like, um being mostly in the educational system i would say i i've never been someone who's good at taking exams or following the path set out by someone else um but then after graduation i i worked on aadhar i've been working on julia and both of them are massive movements of their own which have a very large context in which they are placed um and and that i think you know, started my journey as sort of growing beyond the technical prowess as a programmer. And I'll be the first one to admit, I'm probably not even one of the smartest programmers out there. I think there are probably thousands of people or, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of programmers are probably significantly better than I am. I, I think what really helps me personally is, is going beyond the, the technology itself. So, yeah, before I ask another, another question, well, I mean, the, the points you are making like, fascinating, right? I mean, it looks like the lines between art, science, and so-called programming are all blurring. Uh, so, what's really happening? Because you know, uh, 
like there was this thing about the geeks, right? I mean, they don't get the word. And and now uh, a lot of uh, you know so you know good programmers or engineers uh, that I also speak with, uh, they seem to be uh, talking in this tone that you exactly uh, are at. Uh, so so the lines are really blurring, right, between all these streams. I I think it's I think you've seen a generation grow up, right, and and. You know what used to be, you know, pimply teenagers are now sort of people, you know, twenty years later who are, you know, older and 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 perceive the world around themselves. I, I guess it's that's part of the story, especially in India, right, uh, where where you know we didn't have the golden sort of Silicon Valley years in some sense um, until the '90s, which is when, you know, the the IT boom happened and and sort of led to this outcome, right, like. At some level, if if you know Nandan and Narayan Murthy hadn't started Infosys, it's unlikely I might have uh, you know become an engineer. Just you know the larger dynamics of things, right? Which which are not in one's own control. Uh, it might not have been a career; it may have just been a hobby. Um, but I think the larger the larger thing is important, right? The, the, I think you rightly point out the arts, the humanities. Um, the lines are blurring, right? Because at the end of the day, these are these are things that we have created artificially in our minds, right? That software and technology and sciences and arts and business are are different things. But you know, when when you and I are in the real world, I mean, you know, we do all of these things. Hmm. We may be better at some things and not so good at other things. And in order to become well-rounded individuals who have impact on society, it's I think you know, our duty at some level to figure out things that we are not good at and collaborate with others on those and, and appreciate some of the finer things. And I'll tell you, like, you know, one of the things I absolutely hated growing up was history, right? I, I mean, maybe you maybe you shared my view or maybe you did not. I hated those dates, like the Battle of Plassey or whatever, 1757, who cares? <laughs> and I couldn't be persuaded to think about those dates, although I probably remembered every single one of them going to school in India. Um, but I, you know, today, one of my most, you know, today when I get time, I, I like to read as much history as I can, you know, because as, as they famously say, it repeats itself. Um, and, and you know, the world comes around a full cycle. So, but, you know, that's just one of, you know, one example that's personal for me, right, is, is history. But there's tons of things from the arts and humanities that are wonderful and interesting. Um, that help you become a better programmer. And I think Steve Jobs has famously talked about it, right? The cliches are maybe, you know, often talked about, but how going to the, you know, how, how learning um, the beautiful calligraphy that he did yeah. um, in a liberal arts school was sort of definitive in his thinking about Apple and the Macintosh and, and you know, all that, right? Even he, I don't think he was probably one of the best programmers out there, but but he was able to combine his vision about technology with his learnings from you know the arts and humanities and build products that the world would have otherwise never seen. Yeah, yeah, no, no, very, very well, very well said, Vera. Uh, before before I move to uh, Julia or even Adhar, uh, just one question: this stream of thoughts that that we are you know in right now. Uh, you know, as an outsider, 
uh, when I'm talking to someone from the programming world as you, uh, one question that comes to mind is there are two things playing out there. There is one chatter uh, I keep hearing that everybody must learn how to code. So no matter what profession, no matter what are your interests are, you know, there is this thing building up, say, you know, about why everybody should learn to code. And on the other hand, uh, I don't know if you read this article, I forget where it was published. Uh, the whole death of code kind of a thing is, is also going on. Uh, I don't know if these two are related, but, uh, you know, from outside, it's quite baffling. So what should people do? That's a good question. I I think everyone should learn to code. It's just like, you know, language, right? I mean, you know, it's it's it changes the way you think about the world at 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 a at a certain level, right? And and there's nothing about programming that only programmers, you know, who are sort of who use, you know, for whom it's a career should do it. I it's it's mainstream, it's broad now, right? I mean, software defines everything we do. It's changing the way, you know, the world around us works, right? Like you said that you know, people increasingly are, you know, like like they said, the geeks have inherited the earth at some level, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I think programming should just become a, a regular skill. You know, what I got, you know, what my, uh, you know, elementary school sort of forced upon me in grade eight should be something that, you know, you should teach at, you know, at the third grade. There's no reason why a, a young child cannot learn how to program. And I routinely run into people, uh, you know, whose kids are are learning to program at that age. And, you know, they're using, you know, at, at, at younger ages, something like Scratch. You know, in the earlier days, it used to be Logo. You know, and, uh, you know, as they get a bit older, they learn Python. I hope, you know, they'll screw soon. That will be Julia, maybe. But I, I think it's a fundamental skill. It, it helps you think about the world in certain ways. And, uh, you know, it helps you grow as an individual. So I don't think, you know, it's like mathematics, right? Would you recommend that mathematics only be learned by mathematicians, right? Of course not. I mean, it's hard. You know, it's important for logical reasoning and, and eventually, you know, it, it helps you grow. Um, and I think programming is just an extension of mathematics and, and that's what it should be. The death of code, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, some of those things are a bit exaggerated. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it'll not. But I don't think that fundamentally changes the important nature of, you know, the logical reasoning and, and the analytical capabilities you gain as a programmer. So I think the two are sort of disconnected in some sense. Yes, if, you know, there is the death of code as is famously proclaimed by many people, uh, that's fine. You know, we won't need to write programs for a living. Maybe we can just write programs for fun and hobbies. That might actually be a good outcome, I'd say. Hmm. But, but programming as a pleasure and, you know, as, as a way to develop oneself, I think is, you know, it, it should just be a part of everyone's life. I think that that settles it. <laughs> uh, now let's move to uh, something, uh, you know, famous that happened, uh, at least for people from, you know, like us who watched it from outside. Julia, um, how did it happen and, and why? Julia happened... <laughs> As, as like most things that happen, you know, you know, things are born out of a necessity, you know, you know, being the mother of invention, right? I, start, like, I, I think I mentioned this in, in our earlier exchange in, in the Factor Daily article that you wrote, um, that I started my work on Julia essentially, you know, right after, you know, soon after, not immediately, but soon after my PhD. Um, 
when I moved back to India and started my work on Aadhaar at the same time. And it was actually a nights and weekends sort of hobby project for me. And it, it really came out because of multiple conversations that my you know, co-founders and I were having at that point. And, you know, Jeff Bizanson, uh, Stefan Karpinski, Professor Alan Edelman and myself, right? These, these four of us were having sort of these different conversations around how the state of numerical software was, was just not great at that point. And this, this was 2009 when we started. And I'd spent a PhD developing parallel computing, you know, numerical and scientific parallel systems, um, being extremely unhappy with everything that, that I had used until that point. And, and develop myself. And the same was true for, for Stefan and for Jeff. And, and I think these stories are sort of documented, uh, although maybe not easily you know, findable in one place. But we really thought that the state of numerical software was, was not so great. You had sort of this world where you could either program in C or Fortran and get amazing performance, but by being at very low levels of abstraction, or you could program in something like Python or R or MATLAB um, or SAS, maybe if you know, pick your pick your sort of thing that you like, and 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 you know, get something that is very easy to use and intuitive, but does not scale. You know, but so so levels of abstraction and performance were sort of at odds with each other, and over the last several years of you know, Intel putting out you know megahertz after megahertz on their chips and gigahertz after gigahertz we were led to believe that abstraction is all that matters the, you know what's important is the ability to write software fast not necessarily run it fast because next year you'll always buy a processor that will speed it up you know by moore's law um, and that happened for a while but eventually the pendulum has swung right today we are seeing all these deep learning models and you know what what is called in the popular media as artificial intelligence. I think your I think your listeners might appreciate the point. And you know, I, I'm not trying to sort of take a dig at it. I'm just sort of putting it in in perspective there, right? That the machine learning models that underpin, you know, what we call AI today are incredibly computationally demanding and difficult. Um, and people go to extremely great lengths to get performance out of their hardware. Um, and so getting performance is all that matters today at any cost, you know, whatever the level of abstraction be. And we're seeing very awkward systems come out from, you know, some of our, you know, some of the largest companies out there, right, which do amazing feats of engineering, but are incredibly hard and complex to use. If you look at systems like TensorFlow or PyTorch, I mean, they're incredibly hard to work with and they're incredibly harder, you know, even that much harder to implement under the hood. But this was this was not the case when Julia came out, right? I mean, Julia came out in a world where these things did not yet exist, mm. but with the same mission that we want programmers to use the levels of abstraction that make sense for them as, you know, the level of mathematics, you know, the level of, you know, machine learning or the level of computer science that they're used to working with, but not worry about performance, right? So, right... Write your program in the most intuitive way you can and get the highest levels of performance out of it. And, and we call this the two-language problem. Mm -hmm. So in the past, you had to, you know, you would write your program in Python and then you would rewrite large parts of it in C for performance or sort of the small parts of it that were performance important. And that meant you had to be sort of good at two things which were diametrically opposite to each other, right? 
usually as a domain specialist or a mathematician, right? You're good at your field. You know, I might be great at finance. I might be great at chemistry. I might be great at, you know, designing batteries, for example, right? Mm-hmm. I may not be great at programming and, and knowing everything about computer science. So I, I want to use a tool that's sort of at the right language for what I do, you know, as, as a professional. And that's sort of where Julia came out, right? That's, that was the need for the need of the hour at that point. And that's when we started writing the Julia's sort of project. Hmm. Interesting. So, so give us an update on where you are now with Julia and, and what future do you see for it? Uh, aspirationally, uh, actually, or, or whatever you see ahead. You know, when, once we, you know, when we started, we had no idea this thing would go anywhere, right? It was a, it was a hobby. It was sort of, you know, uh, you know, scratching an itch kind of thing. And in 2012, we ended up sort of announcing it without sort of actually announcing it in some sense. Like, you know, there was this blog post that, that went viral and, and Julia became a project you know, that grew beyond the four of us at some level to, you know, hundreds of people today, right? There are, there are over uh, 800 uh, contributors to Julia, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are 1500 packages, you know, over, over a million downloads. I mean, the, the, sta- the statistics are staggering in my opinion. Hmm. And yeah, it was something that we never actually expected, even though that was the vision we set out with, right? But, but having a vision and building something good does not necessarily mean that the world will will adopt it or like it and we have a long ways to go but i think we have a great start and this is especially true in programming languages you know you learn a language very early on and and it stays with you right for almost a decade or two decades i mean you might you know learn at best half a dozen such languages you know in your entire sort of lifetime as a programmer (laughs) but um so so that's kind of you know how we got started and the, the the vision is basically to make it as easy to program for someone who's not a programmer by training and really sort of power every numerical, every scientific computing, every machine learning thing out there under the hood with Julia. I mean, that would be sort of something when we achieve that, you know, I would think we have, you know, you've done our job. You know, when every device that is making it, you know, every robot that's making a decision or every server that's training a deep neural net or you know, every financial algorithm that is traded upon, you know, or, or every new thing that is designed. I would love to be at a point where Julia is at, you know, is powering anything computational that's out there. And and I know that we are never going to get there, right? Because the world is diverse and, you know, there's always competing ideas. But that's sort of, you know, the the direction Julia is headed in technically. But I'd like to maybe combine it back to the larger things happening in the world around us, right? That to me, it's a lot more interesting that Julia makes possible new devices and inventions that were not possible before that changed the world in meaningful ways. It's great to have a deep learning algorithm, you know, that can recognize an image, right? But it's something completely different when, you know, um, you, you can use computer vision uh, to redefine healthcare as is happening sort of at the forefronts of research today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you can use computer vision, uh, you know, to to deliver better services, maybe in, in, in public services in India. Um, or if you can use machine learning as part of, you know, the India stack, for example, that's coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, or as, as the basis of a number of 
uh, you know, amazing startups that have come about. And, and I'm sort of contextualizing to India, but sure. you know, to the rest of the world. And to give you a concrete example, for example, you know, the thing that excites me the most, uh, one of the most interesting ex- uh, applications of Julia is, is by the FAA, the Federal, the Federal Aviation Administration in the U.S., and, you know, they use Julia to write this specification for the next generation airborne collision avoidance system. Wow. So every time you're on a plane, you know, it, it used to be the case in the 50s or 60s that, you know, planes used to collide, you know, in midair, right? Especially, you know, while they're flying all at different levels and in different places overall, you know, at, at airports and landings and things like this, where they naturally have to come to a sort of a common spot that it was not uncommon to see, you know, some of these collisions, mid-air collisions. And after that came this very successful system called the TCAS in the, I think it might have been the 70s or, you know, around that time, which would give the pilot an alert a minute from the collision. It only kicks in 60 seconds before a potential collision. And it gives an advisory to the pilot on what evasive action to take in order to avoid the collision. Yes. And this system has been sort of, fundamental in in making air travel safe and was developed uh, uh, you know a large uh, collaboration between several you know US government labs and today if you want to change even the color of the light bulb in the cockpit it can take you a decade to get it through and you know what the folks uh, at the FAA and sort of the allied research labs were working on it have achieved is a, a specification for a new system that is, you know, designed for the world of much denser air traffic, which the older system wasn't designed for. And that's a system called ACAS, airborne, you know, the, the, the next one, the next airborne collision avoidance system. And the specification for the, the ACAS system is completely written in Julia. Wow. Right. And this, you know, the team has been at it for over five years when Julia was a very young language, but they realized that there was nothing out there, you know, no combination of existing languages that would give them the level of clarity they would need to communicate to the system implementers what the spec should achieve and run at the performance levels needed, uh, you know, to sort of make it happen. So these are new algorithms. They're computationally much more complex. The mathematics is significantly more sophisticated that, you know, you would actually need a college degree to maybe understand it. And it's, it's really cutting edge work that's that's phenomenal and fascinating. And it has gone through air trials, you know, on planes. It's now being actually in the process of being communicated to the public at large. Um, and, you know, there's nothing secret out here. All of this stuff is, is has been publicly spoken about, but in smaller communities. And today the, the spec has been handed over to the aircraft manufacturers and they're going through it and, you know, using it as a reference to implement something. And the spec in this case is actually a Julia program and a document generated by the Julia program. So it's no, it's not just a document. The spec is actually a program that generates the entire document and the tests that go along with it. And you can actually run it and test it line by line. And I think this is phenomenal, right? Like being able to build a technology that powers an innovation like this. And it was not something we even imagined, you know, would be one of the first applications that Julia would be put to. So while, you know, while we talk about deep learning and all this stuff, you know, applications like this or, you know, another one that we did, which is applying Julia at Petascale for mapping the entire universe automatically, 56 terabytes of data. Uh, we ran Julia on the world's, at what was at that point, the fifth largest computer, supercomputer, Cori, um, you know, running 
at 1.54 petaflops, right? Peta is 10 to the power 15, right? So it's it's basically a million billion uh, floating point operations a second, you know, half a million computing cores. I mean, just doing science at a scale written completely in Julia, but, you know, running at massive scale like this was just never done before. And, and we were able to enable it. Again, something that we would have never imagined someone, you know, using Julia for, but an amazing outcome. So it sort of maybe communicates two ends of the spectrum. So I, I really think Julia, this is the direction, you know, we'd love to see Julia go in, right? Enable inventions that really, you know, are, are beyond technology themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, empower, empower us, um, you know, allow us to empathize with, with each other and so on and so forth. Final two, uh, couple of questions, uh, Viral. You know, the one thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, with, with with the way things are going and, and we are talking of machine learning, uh, decision-making systems, or even AI for that matter, uh, I'm, I'm asking a question about, uh, is there an engineering ethics? Uh, is, is, is there a morality uh, uh, quotient when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, engineering itself? Uh, I, I, I just remembered last week I was reading uh, a news report actually wherein one of the coders was, you know, I think getting prosecuted for uh, for something, and then the company was trying to blame the coder. And, uh, so the question I am asked, trying to ask you, with with the way things are shaping and with the way things are going to be programmed, uh, are there questions about engineering ethics? And if if yes, uh, how do you deal with? There is no doubt that there are questions around ethics, right? Just because ethics are important in everything, right? Not just in engineering, you know, not just in how we write software, but, you know, medical drugs we design or, you know, laws that we make as a society, right? Or in just about anything you do, ethics matter, right? The treatment of your fellow human beings you know, how you, you know, can you empathize with the world around you? Can, you know, what would necessarily make the world a just and a better place? And that's, you know, that's the highest order bit, right? And and engineering is about building things to achieve those goals and ideals. It's, it's, you know, like I was saying, it's not an end in itself. You know, sure, you might technically be able to build a nuclear bomb, but should you, right? I guess that's, I think that might answer the question squarely about ethics right yeah and we know how history shaped up and 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 how these things came about but you know ethically i would love to be able to work on technologies that are enabling uh you know enabling people to find their way out of poverty or enabling you know um enabling say you know newer newer uh kinds of robots to do jobs that 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 are sort of you know not great for humans to do and i can i can touch upon many of these examples uh, myself and especially one in india around you know you know scavenging and and you know that kind of stuff you know why, why should a human ever do those things so there's no doubt in my mind that you need progress and technology uh, in order for society to realize its true potential uh, itself but i i think ethics matter a lot and as a programmer it's not about what the law says. It, it's about what you think is right. 
and are you are you spending your time in the most useful way you know that that is helping you know people around you and and you know the larger sort of society at you know is what i feel i don't know if that sure. answers your question no, but it, does. I, it it does and it it does it beautifully uh, with the examples uh, that you mentioned uh, just one more follow up question to uh, julia viral uh you know in india is an engineering nation uh, you know and so many software professionals and and they used to call themselves java programmers and and so on and things are changing now but one of the issues has been about uh, how do you make contributions to open source or even julia for that matter how how can we what, what is your thought on, on on that front how can this base of uh, coders or engineers do better on that front or what's happening how can they do it i think um you know one of you know one of my very good friends in bangalore who i cannot name unfortunately said this that india is a country of downloaders <laughs> we love to use open source software in fact it powers everything we do i i in fact I remember a story from one of my colleagues at you know one of my friends at adhar who used to who was one of the early guys at onmobile you know the company that built those ringback tones yes and he said the key thing about onmobile's business success was rewriting their entire sun based gold plated solutions into completely scrappy linux based extremely you know 110th or 100th the cost sort of level of cheap software um as they transition from sort of silicon valley to bangalore in in order to sort of be able to sell to the indian telcos as opposed to the us telcos and while the company did not succeed in the us in india it was a raging success at the time and uh, you know so amazing right you know you could use linux and mysql and php and all this amazing stuff and today all of machine learning is free right in the old world you would have had to pay for software packages like spss or matlab or um, you know sas and today you can just download python and tensorflow and pytorch or even you know the the latest iteration of all of this in my mind being julia and and use it so the question is that's great you're getting something for free you know why not contribute back hmm. and especially like you pointed out right we are a nation of engineers we have so many programmers in india you know in school at work um the sheer mass of it i does i don't think is reflected in our open source contributions as a society and i think that would it would be fantastic if if i could use some of my experiences you know to bring about some of this change i did all of my work on julia out of bangalore actually hmm. at least for the first several years um and people often you know it it's it's quite daunting to look at a large open source project and even imagine how you can contribute but the answer is it's actually not that hard hmm. you know as a user you've already taken the first step you know by by voting with your feet you know finally every open source soft software and project needs users without users the project does not exist right in, in nothing exists in a vacuum so you already taken the first step as a user of open source software but now keep climbing that ladder right join the join the user group you know ask questions uh, you know try to fix something try, you know documentation is always something that can you know use a lot of work in an open source project writing tutorials manuals you know running meetups and and training other people to use some of these softwares um writing test cases and you can sort of increasingly work your way up 
you know, depending on how interested you are in the technical or the social aspects of it, uh, you can you can start writing libraries, packages in Julia. You could you could actually, you know, climb up all the way and become a core Julia language and a compiler contributor as well. Or you could be the author of a package that no one else has started working on, but you care about. Or you know, it's it's your own hobby. Or you could run a meetup, or or you could you know, persuade your university you know to adopt and teach open source as opposed to sort of you know programs that they're teaching today, which may which may appear to be uh, the right thing, but eventually are training you to use software and becoming a slave to a corporation, you know, without paying whom you cannot exercise your chosen uh, profession. So I, I think there's a number of ways like this that people can contribute to open source and participate. And, uh, you know, maybe some of the things I said might, might, might help some of the folks, uh, some of your listeners to get started in this journey. Sure. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful, uh, you know, it, it does inspire others. A final question, uh, Viral, and uh, this question is about Aadhaar, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, nothing controversial. In fact, I uh, stay away from these debates because the world is too polarized uh, to express uh, opinion. Uh, but what I want to know from you is uh, an engineer's view of Aadhaar uh, or the key learnings that you had uh, in being part of, of a project like that. Uh, give me give me an engineer's uh, uh, you know view from inside out uh, in 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 being part of Aadhaar. Uh and if if some of those uh, thoughts that you share uh, also touch upon uh, what's going on today, uh, uh, that would be awesome. But but help me see it through your eyes. I, yeah, I, I think that you're you're absolutely right that the world is you know too polarized to have a, a debate like this nowadays. And I personally also stay away from those debates because I'd rather spend my energies building something that will have impact. And and that exactly is what Aadhaar was. In my opinion, you know, no no particular tool or software, you know, is. A, you know, is, is one dimensional, right? Everything has a pro and everything has a con. And eventually you have to decide if the, the pros outweigh the cons, right? And to me, you know, while before I started my work on Aadhaar, I had different views. I had, you know, I joined the project and I understood what it was about. And I grew in my own thinking about government and bringing about change at a scale of a billion people. And it shaped my own you know worldview about how important technology can be in in what you know what it can help us achieve as a society in helping us you know leapfrog um, you know just the other day i was reading satya nadella's you know new book hit refresh which i i would highly recommend for everyone you know to read it's a fascinating story um, and and he talked about you know from his view what you know the benefits of aadhar and india stack and india sort of as a digital economy leapfrogging many of the other steps that, you know, the Western economies took and using that as a, as a way out. Um, it Aadhaar was technologically a fascinating journey, right? The scale of what it achieved with biometrics is, you know, putting all the other debates about it aside, technologically, it redefined the world of biometrics, you know, of biometrics manufacturing, of biometrics technology, of what is considered mainstream. Um, 
and and it adopted all of this at scale way before the iPhone or you know or, or I mean in general the smartphones did. Yeah. So in some sense, you know, it was this classic case of the government adopting a technology at scale that crashes its prices and and makes it completely usable to a point that it it then enters mainstream usage, just like the internet was in the U.S. or GPS, you know, was or or many such things, right? Like Uber would not have existed without the internet or the GPS. Yeah, uh, but they were definitely out of the government, and I think, I think the the adoption of biometrics as a technology at a certain level is you know has happened because of the government of india's sort of adoption of it and like i said you know there are the positives and negatives and i i don't think you and i need to dwell upon them there's plenty of other voices out there to dwell upon them but technology was a fantastic journey but i spent all of my time at aadhaar sort of you know not working directly on the technology i mean i you know i i wrote some of you know i'm a reasonably good parallel systems and distributed programmer but that's not what i did and and gladly there were many people who could do a much better job of it mm-hmm. but what i really enjoyed you know in that process and i think every programmer should at some point as part of their own you know growing up is i i learned about the interaction of of software with society right about you know i'll i'll give you a, a, an example maybe and you know this might be a good one originally we had this view with aadhar that you know when you sign up for your enrollment you know you give all your biometrics and your data you would just be asked a simple question do you want a bank account right because of the financial inclusion problem that existed and to a large extent you know is no longer you know a, a pressing issue today because of some of the things we did but back then you know it was largely believed that everyone needed a bank account and what if you could just check you know check a box saying you wanted a bank account and at the back end we could run this amazing auction and auction of all these bank accounts to the bank that was most interested in serving these people and guess what you know sounds like a great idea right i mean <laughs> why not right what's wrong with it turns out everything it was a massive disaster <laughs> in the field no 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 operator asked the person if they wanted bank account they just checked it either yes or no by default um banks were not interested in taking these accounts but they had contractually agreed to do that so some of them did some of them did not uh the private sector banks were sort of not so interested the public sector ones were kind of chugging along some accounts got opened people were like what the hell i never asked for one you know that that whole thing happened right it didn't happen at any meaningful scale because we cut it out <laughs> it was a failure and and we recognized it and you know out of that was born what is the ekyc service today hmm. it was on the failure of that system that we built the ekyc and instead of building a supply led system we built a demand led system and in the dif- in the in the design of ekyc more than the biometrics or the authentication what was more useful was getting the financial intelligence units blessings the home departments blessings you know the regulators you know rbi sebi irda all the all the regulators to bless it right that if we build a system which provides this 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 piece of information will you amend your laws to accept it as a valid proof of identity not just in the form of paper identity and address and photo not just in the form of paper but in the form electronically and you know like for example originally we thought we'll only reveal the year of birth and not date of birth but then the irda was like look but for insurance policies we really need the date of birth um and so you know 
you can imagine lots and lots of such discussions, you know, around finance, around laws, around technology itself, around the design of the authentication system so that all these use cases could be accommodated and served at scale. And out of that sort of process over three years was born the EKYC service. And it's it's not obvious from the outside, but that I think is what true engineering is about, right? If you could not empathize with someone who could never get a bank account or a SIM card without having to go through hoops, that used to be the case in India. If you could not empathize about that, you would never build such a system. And if you did not travel, you know, around the country and, and see this and empathize with it. And and finally, I, I think that's that was the biggest learning for me in Aadhaar and you know, a lot of people might be expecting an engineering answer, but the engineering was the easy part. I mean, engineering is always easy. You know, it's in your control. You can always build something you set out to design so long as it's, you know, as it's possible, right? Um, but it's it's how people are going to use that system and, and how are they going to react to it and, and and what you should do in, you know, as a result of that and, and so on and so forth, right? The iterated game, like I described. I think that's that's what engineering really is about, and I, I think that's the lesson I, I learned most from Aadhaar. And you know, if you look at you know our book Rebooting India, that describes many of these examples in great detail. Not so much the controversies or the gossip, but actually real solid learnings. And you know, I, I just saw Satya's book, right? I, I just read it, hit refresh, which is why it's, it's fresh on my mind, and and he touches upon exactly the same things coming from very similar backgrounds as many of us, right, from, you know, from Hyderabad himself. So um, I, I really think that's what engineering is about. I, I would highly recommend reading both these books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, amazing, Viral. I think, uh, and, and you you put it so rightly, uh, and I remember reading a story recently about how Satya Nadella has transformed Microsoft, and they said, it is with empathy is, is how he's transformed uh, Microsoft. And now you are making this point about why empathy, having empathy about users is, is such an important thing uh, in engineering. Uh, fascinating. Uh, I think that's uh, my key <laughs> takeaway or key word uh, from this conversation. So uh, awesome, Viral. And, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Godspeed with uh, you know uh, your pursuits. Uh, it's great to watch uh, the journey of Julia. So uh, kudos and Godspeed, Viral. Thanks, thanks, Pankaj, for for this opportunity to talk to you know your users, and I hope that we'll be able to recruit more Julia contributors and users in in India as a result of this. Of course, take care, Viral. Thank you. <laughs>